Which responsibilities do multinationals have for their supply chains? What are the solutions social corporate responsibility offers? And can multinationals really be punished for human rights abuses? We will discuss what social corporate responsibility is and which promising models exist. I'm Julia Hernig, Assistant Professor at Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask, what is wrong with maritime trade? Sustainable law talk right from the center of trade, Rotterdam. Welcome to the fifth episode of this podcast, where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our fifth episode, I'm more than happy to welcome our guest speaker, Professor Dr. Martijn Scheltemar. Welcome. Professor Dr. Martijn Scheltemar is professor at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. He is one of the founders of the Erasmus Platform on Sustainable Business and Human Rights, an interdisciplinary research group of the Rotterdam School of Management and the Erasmus School of Law. He researches business, human rights and climate change related issues in connection with UNGPs and the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. Professor Scheltemer is partner of Pels, Reichen and Truchleven for Tyne and member of the Dutch Supreme Court Bar since 1997. He has specialized in business and human rights issues. He also has been involved in several international human rights landmark cases with the Dutch Supreme Court. So, for instance, Srebrenica, SNS, Explosion and Urgenda. And business human rights cases. So, for instance, the very famous Shell case. He is the only Dutch lawyer ranked in Band 1 for business and human rights in the Chamber Global Guide. Thank you very much for being here. The facts. So, Martijn, in 2010, in, H, in an H&M factory, there was a fire in Bangladesh and 21 uh, workers died roundabout. So, in 2013, a garment factory collapsed in Bangladesh. About 1,000 people died, 2,500 were wounded. Again, it was a factory of the fashion industry. Recently, the company Nestle was accused of having contributed to a system of child slavery and forced labor. These big companies, so the multinationals, become stronger and stronger. And maybe a, as an anecdote, Peter, Parker, uncle, Peter Parker's uncle once said, with great power comes great responsibility. Martijn, our topic is business, human rights and corporate social responsibility. Ensuring safe working places of worker in fac and workers in factories seems an obvious part of it. But what else does this topic entail? Well, I think you rightly say that the, the business human rights topic goes way beyond safe working conditions. Though, of course, in the Bangladesh situations, people have kind of focused on, on those safe labor conditions. Uh, but it entails much broader issues such as involuntary resettlement, for example, human trafficking, uh, modern slavery, already mentioned, but also things as freedom of association, uh, inhumane treatment, so a lot of various uh, topics. And so the, the business human rights challenges, also for larger companies, are quite, quite broad uh, because yeah, they right. have to look at so many different aspects in, in all kinds of issues. Um, but, for example, looking at infrastructure, such mm -hmm. as ports and airports, well, we see that, that they have huge human rights challenges. 
especially not only workers' challenges, but for some, for example, also land right issues, uh, because these large infrastructure projects often also include land right, um, but also broader challenges in, in terms of environmental issues, livelihood issues. So it's, it's, it's very broad. And then, uh, well, that's kind of the basic level. Huh? We yeah. talk about the, the infrastructure ports and the infrastructure okay. project itself. But often, well, you have financial institutions which are involved in these kind of projects. So financing either development banks or commercial banks, sometimes governments. Um, but these financial institutions, of course, may also contribute to human rights violations. And they may also have a responsibility to prevent or at least mitigate as far as possible these mm-hmm. human rights issues. Uh, so, okay. so they can be involved too. And, and finally, what we can also envisage, of course, companies often have a much broader uh, structure of operations uh, than, than the company itself. So, for example, huge supply chains uh, or, or broader yeah. sense, the value chains where they, they sell their goods, for example. And, and also in the supply chains, well, we see a lot of actors like, like suppliers, um, not only the first tier, but also further down the supply chain. And also there, human rights issues can occur. And well, these should also be managed. So you can imagine that for larger, even larger companies, yeah. this is a big, big challenge and, and, and not so easy to fulfill. Yeah, and, and then we t- only talk about the third group you named. So given this complexity, I would like to go step by step. So um, then, then it's also better for the audience to follow. Uh, what do you mean when you say it already starts with the infrastructure? You, so you mentioned ports and airports. Does this concern the workers there or what is exactly the problem here? Well, of course, it, it, it may concern workers there because... Mm-hmm. For example, what you often see is that with these kind of large projects, uh, workers from abroad, for example, are engaged. So there, sometimes exploitation, human rights, and, and human rights trafficking uh, issues, modern slavery issues may, may occur. Uh, for example, we have seen, I think, a very um, well, well-known example are the, the World Championship in Qatar, oh, where yeah, now true. large stadiums yeah. are built, yeah. uh, where we see a lot of abuse from, from well, workers which are kind of recruited in, in many other countries and then flown in to Qatar, where they have to, to work in very high temperatures, long days. So, so that Awful, are yes. yeah, issues with which many times are also kind of seen in, in, um, in these large infrastructure projects. Uh, but of course, it, it, it's much more. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, uh, what you have, large ports, large infrastructure, takes a lot of land. Uh, and oh, so while yes. the land is f- often previously used by local communities and local people. And so th- often these are resettled. Uh, and what we well, generally see is that the government is involved in the resettlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have that in, 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 for example, Germany and the Netherlands and European countries as well. Yeah, uh, but there the coal, we yeah. have kind of consistent yeah. and, and also including due process expropriation uh, procedures. Mm-hmm. And then people are paid full, full compensation. And while well, there are judges involved, independent judiciary. So, so those are kind of well, procedures which, which are kind of, well, have a kind of human rights compliant approaches. Yeah. But in those countries... This often does not happen. So yeah. people are expelled from their grounds without any compensation or the government you know, just, for example, hires the military and, and, and kind of, well, just expels the people or they are paid very little compensation. 
and, and in these countries, the problem also is that land well, where we know formal land rights, where we exactly know who is the owner yeah. uh, of, of a piece of land. Well, in those countries, that, that's much more difficult. Often yeah. they don't have kind of formal registrations, but beyond that, often people also have informal land rights. Okay. For example, in, in, in many African countries, for example, women cannot inherit land. So if their spouse then dies, well, then yeah, officially somebody else becomes the owner, yeah. a formal owner, but they are still using the ground, so, so they kind of consider themselves uh, yeah. to be the owner. But so well, we have these kind of informal land rights, and, and sometimes also, also with a religious background, that can also happen. Yeah. So a lot of different types of land rights, mm-hmm. and all these people are expelled, yeah. whereas we have international frameworks in the human rights arena, which uh, require even from people having these kind of informal land rights, to give their free prior informed consent yeah. for the resettlement. That is, that is a good outlook for, for the second part, definitely. So it's, yeah, it's okay. I didn't, I, to be honest, I didn't think about this land. And um, quite recently in German television, there was uh, a report about the sand crisis. And it's tremendous how big the sand rate is. I, I didn't expect this, to be honest. And um, so the in- entire problem of human right violation already starts with an overexploitation of natural resources and will take away the basic needs of of people in the end um, so for instance also we we saw this with for instance avocados that clean water or that water in general is missing um, yes so um, these basic needs are quite relevant yeah yeah and, and I, I do agree, indeed, that this is a big, big challenge in, in terms of well, what, what often happens, huh, that you see kind of over-exploitation of, of natural resources, and what often then happens, that that causes well, livelihood issues or local communities um, uh, while not being able to kind of well, go on as they did, so, so they kind of lose their livelihood, a lot of well, ground use, which was originally possible, or, or well, natural kind of resources they could use well they cannot go no longer use we see environmental issues in terms of pollution True. Or, yeah. or even connected to fresh water for example yeah. because companies are often well then uh, extracting fresh water so so well they, they, that's kind of issues that, that that then arise and what then often happens is then that that causes disputes with the mm-hmm. enterprises yeah. and, and the government but what we then generally see is that or robust dis- dispute resolution systems huh, to solve and address these issues often lack. And what then happens sometimes is that, for example, NGOs become involved and then these kind of issues tend to, to escalate. Yeah. Uh, the NGOs are then attracting media attention, uh, internet campaigns, and so then, well, things may escalate for the companies. So, and then basically the people get robbed of their basic needs, their houses, their everything. Yeah. Um, so if, if I may, um, so you also named others. Um, so let's maybe move to the investors and the financial sector. How do they contribute to the violations? Well, there I think, and now we get into intricacies of human rights and business human rights, we have yes. to be precise here. Yeah. Um, because contribution has a specific meaning in, in the mm-hmm. human rights environment. Um, and that is because, well, we have frameworks, international authoritative frameworks like the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business Human Rights and the OECD Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. 
and they discern between different types of involvement mm -hmm. a company or financial institution may have in human rights abuse. Yeah. And that is causation, where the company itself causes uh, the human rights violation. For example, it discriminates its own workers, for example. Um, and then we have contribution, where the company has contributed to the violations, for example, by imposing well, very strict uh, loan measures or loan uh, requirements, which, which may kind of incentivize yeah. human rights abuse. And the third one is linkage, where mm -hmm. no causation or contribution occurs, but all it is kind of connected to what the activities yeah. of the financial institution. That's usually what's the case in terms of loans and, and, um, and, and project finance. Um, uh, for example, if a, a, a bank finances an infrastructural project, yeah. uh, well, then it's mainly kind of linked in, 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 in terms of these guys. Uh, yeah, it's friends. all about the money then, and the money can incentivize. Yeah, yes, yeah. true. Uh, though for the financial institutions, well, they, they have different challenges. For, because in project finance, like financing infrastructural, large infrastructural projects, well, there the, the, the relationship is quite direct yeah. and the banks are able to kind of impose quite direct in, uh, requirements in terms of human rights compliance mm -hmm. but they have other functions too for example in terms of general corporate lending or asset management okay, and there yeah. the linkage between the bank and the financial um, activities are, are what happens with the money so to say it's much more uh, well distant and remote yeah, yeah. So and then you cannot trace it back easily it is, yeah, and, yeah and also then the question also is how far does the, the kind of um, uh, involvement of the banks reach? Uh, for example, mm -hmm. in, in, in general corporate lending, well, you just lend money to a company and then it may kind of do with the money what it likes. Huh? Yeah. And, and so, well, you can say then to the company, well, okay, you have to, for example, identify risks uh, in your chain and you have to manage it. But then what happens if, for example, this is a subsidiary? And part of the money goes to the parent company, which yeah. has human rights challenges. Should the bank then also require the subsidiary to ask the parent company, well, you have to do. Uh, and, okay. and, and so, so that's kind of all there. We get discussions on how far uh, the, mm -hmm. the kind of obligations of the bank in terms of managing uh, in, in the financial issues yeah. and, and the human rights issues go. Okay, um, and well, this basically links to the uh, topic we have, uh, so sustainable finance, that will be also one episode we will record this year. Um, let's come then to the last part, <laughs> well, <laughs> the last very, very big part, of course. So the participants of the supply chains, um, these are involved. So uh, we, we talked about uh, who participates in a supply chain quite often this here in this podcast. So manufacturers, retailers, um, all involved. Um, yeah, we talked about the, the yarn factories, but there is certainly more about this. Yeah, um, I think um, yeah, th these retailers are, and also the, the, the other people deeper down the supply chains, well, for them, um, well, often the, what kind of happens and in the current economic models is, of course, that we try to well, have activities at the places where labor is cheapest. Yeah. And of course, well, the kind of inherent in that model is that, that yeah, well, abuse and, and exploitation are quite near huh? because, mm -hmm. well, you want uh, well, very low prices for labor. So, yeah, well, then exploitation and the like are kind of well, more kind of to be expected. So when Western companies source in other countries, well, that these kind of human rights abuses, well, maybe 
much more prevalent than they would be in, in, in their own country. Though, for example, in the, in, in the Netherlands and in other Western countries, exportation also happens, yeah. uh, but it's less frequent often than in those countries. Yeah. So as a Western retailer, it's very important to manage these supply chains, and, and these the frameworks I just mentioned also require Western yeah. retailers, for example, and, and but also Western infrastructural shipping and, and other companies mm-hmm. to, to, to do things. Um, so, um, well, there you have to manage those supply chains throughout the supply chain. So not only the parties you have a contractual relationship with, yeah. but also further down the supply chains. Uh, and, well, there what we usually see is that, that most companies manage the first tier mm-hmm. of suppliers because they have a contract with them. Turn yeah. to that later, but but well, the contractual issues well, yeah. remain there. But but well, that's what they usually do. But there, well, these frameworks require companies to go much deeper in the supply chain, also yeah. check f- further down the supply chain. But that, of course, is very challenging uh, because well, subcontracting happens. Yeah. Uh, suppliers are not always willing to cooperate and show what really happens. And and well, then what I already mentioned, the economic uh, procurement processes where you want to have basically low lowest prices yeah well they do not really match with well on the yeah, other hand true. also asking for human rights compliance yeah, i mean you need to provide for housing yeah. and you need to provide for yeah, exactly. food and, yeah, and all and the basic needs we have also yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's absolutely true um so i would then jump to the uh trump transport sector the previous so the the uh, last episode was on seafarer and the working condition. And uh, there was a huge discussion that usually the transport sector is not transparent, made transparent. And in, in the supply chain um, acts and everything, it is not really visible that transport sector is a part of it. So at least for the consumer. Um, so maybe very, very briefly, which human rights attacks does uh, or abuses does this industry uh, cause? Yeah, no, I think it's indeed often forgotten, but I think it is, and that's why abuse is also frequent there, because, yeah. well, most people kind of do not realize that that may be an issue too, but we see, indeed, uh, big challenges in, in shipping, for example, uh, the workers' rights, of course, uh, forced labor, uh, safety rules, and the like, uh, and, and we have seen some very, um, well, difficult, I think, uh, but also challenging examples of, of, of exploitation in the shrimp uh, fishing uh, for example, but also uh, further, further processing of shims in, in, in Asia. Yeah, um, uh, but also other types of, of um, exploitation, not, not so much with the, the shipping itself, but with the dismantling of ships, for example. Oh, yeah, we have, yes. uh, In Bangladesh, for example, well, they just put on the sand on the, on the beach, and then yeah. well, people are just with bare hands, well, uh, kind yeah. of dismantling ship with asbestos, and then well, yeah. that's kind of... Uh, this awful uh, procedure is called beaching. It sounds so nice, but it isn't. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. And so, th- therefore, for example, the EU now has a regulation which requires European ship owners to only dismantle at, at uh, shipyards which are approved by the, uh, by the European Commission. True, true. So... Um, Thank you very much for this overview. Um, and this, I think, uh, concludes also the first part. So we know where the ac- uh, who the actors are. We know what they do. But we now want to punish them. <laughs> and that's, I think, something we need to discuss in the second part. Thank you very much for this. The legal issues. 
to start with, uh, from what you told us in the first part, human rights violation must be defined in a broad way. So we had so many aspects. What, how can human rights violations be defined or described? Well, that, that's indeed not an easy task. Uh, if we look at the, the fr international frameworks in the business human rights arena, like the human United Nations Guiding Principles or the OECD Guidelines, they include a very, very broad definition of human rights. So not only the kind of traditional human rights in terms of right to life and, and mm -hmm. inhumane treatment and, and the like, but also much broader ones in terms of rights of indigenous peoples, land rights, ELO uh, conventions. So it, 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 it is very broad. So, so it kind of ranges from uh, the kind of well-known workers' issues, modern slavery, child labor, but also uh, on the other end, for example, to access to water. Yeah. Uh, which, which is also considered to be very closely related to human rights. And then I think the most important part is that the people on the ground affected by company activities do not frame things as a human right or not, yeah. but they have a specific problem with the company and they want the problem solved. Yeah. So, so that, I think, is always good to bear in mind if we start as a lawyer trying yeah. to define very precisely human rights. Though so what we see is that in, in legislation in which human rights due diligence, which we come on or talk about later, is required by law, there you see different approaches. For example, in French law, human rights as such are not defined, mm -hmm. whereas, for example, in the recent German law, yeah. there is a quite yeah. well, precise definition of human rights. So, so there we, we see different approaches. Yeah, and the different approaches bring, uh, bring of course, then different uh, consequences. Either you have loopholes or it's just too vague. Um, yeah. We said at the beginning that the great influence of the multinationals uh, must necessarily result in a greater responsibility. Uh, for this, also the term human rights due diligence is used. What does human rights due diligence entail and what is the legal basis? Well, um, in, in terms of, of legal basis, we have to be a little bit cautious because mm -hmm. in, in some countries, as just explained, but we yeah. have a real legal basis where indeed uh, human rights due diligence is kind of required by law. Mm -hmm. um, but in many other countries, we do, do not have such laws yet. Yeah. And there, the, the human rights due diligence is kind of based on authoritative international frameworks. Okay. Uh, and those are the United Nations guiding principles and the OECD guidelines. And the United Nations Guiding Principles, adopted in 2011, um, have basically three pillars. Okay. Uh, of course, they, they emphasize the state responsibility and duty to protect, protect and also respect human rights. But it has two other pillars, and these, those are quite important for our topic today, because the second pillar is that companies should respect human rights, and regardless of whether or not governments are respecting human rights. So they cannot point at a government and say, well, the government does not respect human rights, so then it's not my business either. No, also in such cases, they have to respect human rights themselves. That's good stuff. Yeah. And, and one of the ways of respecting human rights is conducting human rights due diligence, mm -hmm. uh, which I will explain later. Um, and the third pillar of the framework is that if things go wrong, yeah. Business, but also governments, of course, have to provide access to remedy um, and make good 
for damages, for example, if, if human rights abuse have occurred. Uh, and for business, that's only necessary when they have caused or contributed. Okay. Uh, in, in the yeah, yeah. meaning of uh, what I explained before. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, human rights due diligence, uh, that's also important, I think, to explain, includes six steps. Okay. The quite extensive. <laughs> quite extensive. So a lot of work to do. And, and mm. well, what you often see uh, is that, that those steps are not equally um, kind of sufficiently implemented by, by businesses. Okay. The first step is, is well, relatively easy. And, and I think many companies have, have taken that step. That's to develop a policy, how to deal with human rights issues and to implement um, that policy in, um, in, in the uh, company. Okay. Um, the, the second one, a little bit less so, but, but well, many times also uh, still complied with, and that's, that's a company you have to identify the risks of the operations of your company caused to third parties, so to people who are affected by your activities, but not only the company's own activities, but also further down supply chains, for example. Oh, so you yes. also have to identify risk further down supply chain, not only first year, but even, uh, even beyond that. Um, the next one, and that's much more challenging, is then if risks are identified, you have to well, of course, uh, preferably prevent, but if, if risks have occurred, then also mitigate. And oh, there, yeah. And that's Especially of course for the long chain. Exactly. Uh, and after that, you have to monitor and track mm -hmm. whether indeed what you have tried to do indeed is successful. So indeed, are the risks now mitigated or, or even prevented for next, uh, next, next um, uh, time? Fifth step is that you also have to report what you have done to the public, so kind of public reporting. Um, and then ASADA, if indeed the risk identification shows that things have gone wrong and human rights abuse has occurred, then and you have caused or contributed it, then you have to provide access to remedy. So that's kind of six steps of the okay. framework. Well, it, it sounds well thought through, <laughs> at least. Um, and it also sounds promising. It, it gives us hope. Um, you referred to the compliance and tracking of the measures. Uh, that was point four. Can you maybe give uh, an explanation or an example? How does this look, this transparency or this tracing and tracking, how does this look in it like in the practice? Well, that, that's very, very challenging because um, well, what we see is that, that some companies are really trying to, to track uh, issues, uh, but, but well, that's the problem of companies often have very, very many supply chains. Uh, some companies even have hundreds of thousands of supply chains. So, so for them, it's, it's, it's really difficult uh, to, to monitor well, all, the, all the challenges and all the risks in, in, in their supply chains. Of course, the frameworks acknowledge that and, and then I'll say, well, you may prioritize, but then you have to start with the most severe risks. Huh? So the chains where the most severe risks may occur, that those are the ones you have to start mm -hmm. with. And then well, you can, yeah. after that, also dive into other ones. Um, but in terms of compliance programs, well, we have different approaches. Some mm -hmm. larger companies have their own departments, which, which engage with suppliers, for example, and, and uh, even track uh, beyond the first tier. Um, often companies also use external auditors, Okay. And in some countries, that's, that's really necessary. For example, in China, if we as a Western kind of buyer walk in China, yeah. well, it's uh, 
not <laughs> possible anymore. I think yeah. these days, but well, it, it used to be. But but then, well, well people saw you coming huh, at, at yeah. the factory. Well, then everybody was uh, well, no no kind of child labor, no issues. Yeah. Uh, everybody happy. Uh, but of course, what then happened if then when local people were engaged, yeah. then sometimes abuse and issues were. Uh, kind of discovered so well you sometimes you need these kind of local auditors mm-hmm. to really find the find the problems um what other companies also are doing is is well becoming a member of of certification schemes for example fair trade uh, fair wear uh, rainforest alliance and, and the like and then what kind of certification takes place in 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 those supply chains and that's another way yeah, to monitor yeah. what, what's happening and finally, we see also multi-stakeholder initiatives emerging in, in this area, for example, like the IGT, but also the, the Dutch um, International Responsible Business Conduct Agreements. In the Germany, we have the Textilbundnis, for example. Yeah. Um, so these are kind of frameworks which are kind of multi-stakeholder, which also um, uh, assist companies uh, in, in their due diligence throughout supply chains. And gives also us consumers a certain reliability um, that that is very imp- important. Speaking of the public, um, you mentioned that it needs to be reported to the public. Uh, how must the uh, how m- do these information or how must the public be informed? Does a post on a website suffice, and must it stay there for a certain duration? How does this work? Well, that that depends a little on on the relevant legislation uh, because mm-hmm. we see in. in we have just just discussed the human rights due diligence laws in some countries and also in the EU in connection with conflict minerals, but we see more countries where reporting yeah. is, is uh, obliged by law. And for example, the UK has such legislation, or U- US has that, and the EU also uh, has a, a non-financial reporting requirement for larger companies, and that will be become even more strict uh, in the coming years and also for smaller companies. So, but it depends a little. Um, and, and also the content of what mm-hmm. should be communicated to the public yeah. differs. For example, in, in, in the UK, you can well basically say that you take or do not take measures to prevent uh, modern slavery, uh, but even a, a statement which says, I d- I'm doing nothing, well, nobody yeah. does that, of course, <laughs> but, but, but well, in, in theory, well, you could do that. So, yeah. so there's no kind of well, substantial requirement in terms of what should be in it. Uh, the EU is a little bit more strict, but well, in the current legislation, that's, that's still... Well, not 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 very uh, difficult to meet. So so well, companies are kind of basically free to what they report. So what you then generally see is that the the non-financial reporting from different companies is very hard to compare. Yeah. Where we, for example, in the financials, well, we have one type of reporting, huh, which is yeah. kind of internationally acknowledged, uh, and there, so you can compare the figures. A bit in terms of non-financial reporting, that's that's much harder because most companies well pick topics. Some report extensively about, for example, climate change, and not so much about human rights issues. Yeah, and others have yeah. other types. So, well, it, it, it's not really comparable. Um, and and well, uh, how long it should stay on the website? Usually, well, when you replace the statement with another statement in the UK, well, yeah. then well the other older statement then then dis- disappears. Uh, the non-financial reporting, well, it's uh, often put on the website and then the next year a new report, uh, but often these non-financial reports, I, I, I receive many from them from, from bigger companies and they also put the reports on paper. Okay. Uh, so those, well, of course, are then um, yeah, kind of indefinitely, yeah, <laughs> kind true. of uh, as long as you keep the, keep the paper, it's yeah, uh, still there. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, and um, then you said um, once a, a human rights violation was committed, uh, the companies need to provide remedies uh, within a certain time frame. How long do the companies have time? Well, that's, that's a very relevant question. Um, I think um, that question uh, is not often answered yet because most companies do not even provide any remedy. So then, well, how timely it should be is then Just not even discussed. The so so <laughs> the, the big problem here is I think that most yeah. stakeholders still do not have a kind of effective and, and sufficient access to remedy. But then answering your question, that depends on the, on the issue at hand. Yeah. Uh, because and, and if we have legal use of force, for example, by a private security company, a multinational has engaged to project, protect, for example, a port building project, well, there, of course, that kind of violation should be terminated right away. Uh, and, and if a thing has abuse has been done, uh, that should, should be compensated. But, for example, if you talk about freedom of association in a, yeah. in a factory, well, then in a country where that's not acknowledged uh, and, and where people and, and also factory owners are not used to what freedom of association then entails, uh, then, of course, it, it's much harder to implement it. So then you cannot say, well, next week we will have freedom of association in, in this factory. Uh, so then I think yeah, maybe a year or two years uh, before that can be realized. So then I think yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it may take a little bit longer. Okay. Um, so coming to the maybe main issue, um, the OECD guidelines, well, they are guidelines. They are non-binding. Uh, and this links to the question or the discussion we had in the previous episode where in particular the non-binding rules of the Maritime Labour Convention were criticized. Um, so I assume that the enforcement of the rules is not assured, ensured at all if we do not have a national law that um, enables this. Yeah, I, I think um, that is partially true. Okay. Uh, though uh, things are, are shifting uh, mm -hmm. these days. Um, but indeed, of course, uh, the, the, the guiding principles and the OECD guidelines are non-binding. At yeah. least for governments they are, but, but not for, for business. Um, so for them, indeed, uh, yeah, enforcement is difficult. Yeah. Um, and so in, 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 in well, what's still the problem, of course, in, in the economic models is that, that human rights abuse to a certain extent is still a competitive advantage. Because we have those low prices, because True. people are exploited. Yes. Uh, so and everyone wants to buy cheap. Yeah. So, so uh, well, there I think, uh, uh, well, that is part of, of the issue, of course. Yeah. And then another issue is that, well, we had a huge discussion in the UN on kind of developing human rights obligations for business. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of this century, well, the UN tried to come up with such a framework, but that completely failed because no people... Well, the countries did not kind of agree upon well, what the then uh, obligations for business should be. So what then ha then happened is that the UN Secretary General asked Mr. John Ruggie, um, special representative at the, at the UN, um, to develop a kind of framework which did work. Yeah. And what Ruggie then thought is, okay, well, I'm not going to develop any human rights obligations for business because that has just failed. But what he did is kind of basically come up with a kind of managerial framework how companies should respect human rights in their business. And what, what he kind of did was then develop that concept of human rights due diligence. So it's not 
as a business, you have to have these and these, these human rights, and your obligations are this and this and this. No. He said, well, we have a lot of human rights, and the way you should deal with it is to do that due diligence. Yes. So it's kind of more kind of managerial concept. True. True. But then the problem, of course, is now it becomes more legally binding because mm-hmm. countries are saying, well, we want to implement it in legislation. And it's a good model, yeah. And it's a good model. Yeah. But then, yeah, we get all kinds of issues in terms of, well, what exactly then is cause? What is exactly contribute? Who are stakeholders? Yeah. Uh, and, and so these are kind of concepts in, 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 the fr- in these frameworks, which still has no legal definition. Uh, so if we want to make it a legal kind of framework, yeah. well, then we also have to interpret these kind of well, definitions Broad and make terms, them yeah. more legal. Huh? So, 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 well, there, there are some, some bridges I think we have to cross mm-hmm. uh, before we can really implement it as a, a legal, legal framework. Yeah. Um, so, but, but yeah, many countries are doing that uh, yeah. currently. So, so or already have done that. So, so it is possible. Uh, and, and, and so, so it happens. So it becomes more and more binding. And what we also have seen for example, in the Netherlands, in a climate change case, but but there yeah, the, the human rights frame exactly. The well, there it was kind of used yeah. to fill in open yeah. tort norms. So right. that's another way in which these these norms become more legally binding. Okay, thank you very much. So this is one of the aspects. So the binding rules we will see in the outlook. So in the third part, that there are also other flaws. Um, for the victims and for the people that suffer from this human rights abuse. Thank you very much for the legal explanations. Um, I would like to leave the discussion here and uh, move on to the third part. Thank you very much. My pleasure. The Outlook. So in principle, there are three major obstacles. So first of all, of course, the non-binding legal nature. That's what we discussed in the last part. Then uh, the access to remedy and how to quantify a damage. Um, And in this part of the podcast, I would like to discuss how these obstacles can be overcome. We record this episode in January 2022. We had hoped for news from the European Commission by December uh, 8th last year, but unfortunately the decision was again postponed. This also means that we do not know what the new suggested rules on EU human rights due diligence will be. However, there are already approaches that try to tackle the legal obstacles you named. Uh, And starting with the problem of non-binding law, what are the current approaches? Very, very briefly, we had this a bit already, we touched upon it in the last part, but maybe very briefly, what are the current approaches? Well, what we see, but in the EU, of course, already le- legislation exists. Huh? We have a uh, EU uh, regulation on conflict minerals; those that are minerals which are kind of uh, mined in 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 mines in in Congo and other conflict-prone oh, areas. Yes. And there, of course, the human rights due diligence already has to be implemented. Uh, we see national approaches, like in France and in Germany, where local laws are um, implemented, and also the Netherlands has also announced. Uh, to implement a, a Dutch law on, um, on human rights due diligence. Apart from that, we see other types of binding models, like in the International Responsible Business Conduct Agreements in the Netherlands, for example, in the textile and the natural stone mm-hmm. sector, um, but also the, 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 the German textile bundes, which is also yeah. a binding uh, mechanism. Um, and what we also see is a movement to improve, for example, contractual clauses. Ah, in, yeah. in supply chains, 
Um, the American Bar Association has published model clauses for supply chains to regulate human rights um, uh, issues. And I'm, I'm the chair of a European project, which is currently trying to do the same thing for Europe. Oh, great. Where yes. we try to yeah. analyze the, the, the most important legal systems in Europe and try to adapt the American model clauses to the uh, European setting. Um, and, and my co-chair is the, the chair of the American Bar Association project, so we are kind of well aligned with, with their... Oh, great. Uh, so you project. can benefit from the experience there. Exactly. Yeah. Great. So uh, maybe also for the audience, so model clauses are quite beneficiary for everyone because it decreases transaction costs, basically, if you can rely on a certain model. Um, it is very assuring to see that there are attempts to impose binding duties on companies, at least at the national level, but also, of course, to make it easier for them to implement it by these uh, model clauses. Um, just presume for a minute that the binding nature of human rights diligence can be achieved at a European level. Isn't it still hard for the victims to have access to remedies? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid so. Um, yeah. Because um, from the three pillars in, in the United Nations guiding yeah. um, uh, uh, principles, it's, it's still the most weak pillar. And of course, that, that well has many, many causes. But of course, the issues often arise in countries where the rule of law, for example, it's much less well implemented than what well, we know uh, as, it, as it is in, in Western countries. Um, and so, for example, access to national courts for victims of human rights abuse is often very challenging, not only because of corruption issues or um, in terms of cost, but also in terms, for example, of access to information on what exactly, exactly happened. Often they do not really know how, what their possibilities are in terms of, of access to remedy. So that, that is a, a big challenge and often they do not trust uh, yeah. um, existing mechanisms. So, so there's a lot of issues we see uh, that that's had a kind of all kind of complaint mechanisms for example factory level with, with mm -hmm. multi-stakeholder initiatives so a lot of mechanisms do exist but often they are kind of considered in isolation yeah. and, and so what we kind of need of is a kind of more effective remedy ecosystems uh, where, where they collaborate and, and so far that's that's still a big challenge true um and, and yeah, well, we see examples of, of the binding um, uh, resolution mechanisms within, for example, the, the German Textilbundnis, within the, the Dutch uh, Responsible Business Conduct Agreements in the Garment and the Natural Stone, for example. Mm -hmm. We see that also in the Bangladesh Accord. Oh, uh, Bangladesh. It's kind yeah. of well, we now renewed and it's now called International Accord, mm -hmm. but, but um, uh, which was on, 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 of course, worker safety and minimum wages in, in Bangladesh. So things is are kind of improving a little, but I think, well, these kind of comprehensive remedy ecosystems we need, well, there we still have a long way to go. Yeah, it sounds like this. Um, also what you said, that um, they do not have access to information. Um, that reminded me of the, the previous episode where a seafarer cannot, provide, cannot prove that a damage happened on board because of different records um, in charge of the master. So there are different approaches. Improved access to information makes absolutely sense, of course, and transparency also improves a balance of interest. Which information are concerned and what are the ideas of the communication tools? 
Well, there I think, and, and I already kind of emphasized that in the, in the answer to the last question, I think we, we need to help people to navigate through their options. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I think that first starts with informing them on their rights, yeah. uh, because a lot of people do not kind of know their rights. Yeah. And, and often, well, what also may be a problem is that what they see as a big issue uh, may not be a kind of well, thing we feel is the, the biggest issue. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, I have seen surveys from workers uh, where, where they kind of ask all kinds of questions on, on the situation on the ground. And, and for example, what, what one of the workers then kind of said to in, in the survey, well, my, my passport is, for example, taken by, by the employer. Well, that are, is a kind of red flag for, for yeah. all kind of people working in the business human rights arena in terms of human trafficking and all kinds of issues. Yeah. Um, but then when we ask this, this person, well, what is now the kind of main issue you have? And he said, well, that is that I get my wages in time. Um, and so when you ask him about the passport, and he said, well, is, is, isn't that a problem? No, no. He said, well, it gets kind of dirty if, if I work with the passport in, in my pocket all day. So well, it's fine. That the, and, and I get it back every evening, so it, it's no problem. So <laughs> it's kind of, well, but those are the kind of things uh, where yeah. we kind of may consider if we just look at the survey and think, oh, well, we have a big, big red flag here, whereas the worker kind of considers it's a different type of problem. But of course, if we inform them about their rights, uh, well, then things may change. True, yes. But, but also in, in terms, and, and that I think is also very, very important, um, that they get information on the type of options they have, but also on how the process works itself. Yeah. In terms of well, what can they expect, what kind of outcome can they expect, yeah. how are outcomes monitored, for example. So these kind of things are all very important. And I think most mechanisms so far do not meet all those requirements. Okay, um, but yeah, this sounds definitely reasonable. You mentioned the garment and stone industry um, and the Dutch regulation. Why in particular this industry and not others? Well, um, here uh, I think it is important to, to uh, mention that the, the Dutch International Responsible Business Conduct Agreements and also in, in um, connection with the, the German textile bundes have established binding dispute resolution mechanisms where also external complaints, so from other people than the people involved in these agreements can be lodged and where is assessed whether or not the, the companies adhering and signatory to the agreements have complied yes. with the, 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 the agreements and the agreements kind of basically implement the OECD guidelines. So what, what the mechanisms in fact do uh, is, is assess compliance with the OECD guidelines. And, and so far uh, the garment mechanism has rendered some binding decisions which are uh, published on the internet, and they are kind of unique in the world because there is no other binding mechanism so far which kind of well, judges or, or whether or not the OECD guidelines are met. So oh, that's f- great. From that perspective, yeah. it, it's kind of a way forward. Though I think also that mechanism mm-hmm. uh, still has big challenges in terms of accessibility because workers on the ground in Myanmar or yeah. Vietnam... They don't look this up. They no, don't yeah. know the mechanism, so they definitely need NGO support. So what kind of, and, and that's kind of my point in terms of remedy ecosystems, what mm-hmm. you kind of ideally would need is a kind of a local, very easy accessible mechanism where first complaints can be lodged, have yeah. or try to solve the issue. And if it cannot be solved, then the escalation mechanism uh, with the garment binding agreement, but with the binding mechanism then kind of, is a possibility and then of course the, the, the local mechanism can refer 
yeah. uh, to, to that binding mechanism. But I think in that way, it, it may work. But so far, accessibility is still an issue. True. Um, speaking of which, so speaking of the workers in, in Bangladesh, you also mentioned the Bangladesh Accord. So this is at least something regional there. How does this work and why is this, does this make a difference? Well, there, I think the interesting thing is that the Bangladesh Accord, or the in International Accord, as it's now called, um, has that indeed remedy ecosystem. Because what they have built are factory-level complaint mechanisms, mm -hmm. which are very well known to the workers, with local people, which are trusted by the workers also. And so speak their language. Of course. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so they, they know kind of also from cultural perspectives how to deal and, yeah. and, and talk to with, with these people. And then, well, they try to solve the issue. And if the issue is not solved, then it's escalated to the secretariat of the, the Bangladesh Accord. That kind of then relates to the company sourcing from that factory and say, well, things are going wrong. Uh, so talk to your supplier and ask him whether why he's not implementing uh, the, yeah. these, these rules of the, the decisions or the, the, the kind of solutions required. Um, and if that's a kind of fault, then usually uh, the supplier indeed does that. But if the supplier does nothing, Well, then the international trade unions have an option for binding dispute resolution and arbitration um, at the Bangladesh Accord. So first mm. the secretariat then decides, and if the company does not agree with that, well, then there's a kind of escalation mechanism to, to arbitration. So what, what we see is indeed that, that remedy ecosystem of a local uh, factory-level complaint mechanism. And if complaints are not solved, uh, we have kind of escalation steps yeah. and finally by binding arbitration. So... That, I think, is, is an example, but a very scarce example yeah. uh, of, of access to remedy in an ecosystem which really works. So, so that is an interesting example, therefore. Yeah, perfect. So um, just imagine it, it works perfectly <laughs> uh, and, and just assume <laughs> uh, and um, that the workers are brave enough to take these steps. And then they are still they still have the problems and the difficulties regarding assessment of the amount and the intensity of the damage. Which solutions exist here? Um, yeah, um, there I think the, 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 the well, situation is even more challenging, I think, than with remedy, yeah. access to remedy in general. Because what, what we see is that there are many mechanisms available to, work or to affected people are only providing so-called forward-looking solutions. Yeah. So they can well, implement or advise recommendations and companies should implement to prevent future issues. Mm -hmm. But of course, that does not make good uh, past damage. Yeah. And so only few mechanisms are indeed able to provide that. Of course, national courts can, but that, that is a, a kind of well, challenge in itself mm -hmm. for many of the affected stakeholders. But other, t other mechanisms are often not Uh, capable of doing that. Only a few, uh, the, the mentioned uh, uh, dispute resolution mechanisms in the, in the Dutch and, and German uh, textile and, and natural stone, uh, Dutch natural stone can do that. The, the Bangladesh Accord uh, can, to a certain extent, provide that, but, but not really for the workers. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, often it, it, it's really, really challenging. And of course, on top of that, also the calculation of human rights uh, violations is, is difficult. Yeah. Uh, because, well, for the kind of, well, kind of right to life, and, and those are kind of well, issues that's probably, well, can be done in terms of material damage, but often it's kind of more immaterial. 
Yeah. And in many systems, immaterial damages are even much harder to calculate and, 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 and even more scarcely awarded to, to, to people. So it depends a little on what type of damage you have, but, but um, yeah, it, it, it's not so easy to, to, to calculate. So, um, um, yeah, there, I think that is a problem. Um, and, and of course, in, in terms of access to remedy, a also salient issue is that many companies do not even know where in their change these issues arise. And yes. so even if they would want to compensate, they often do not know. True. Yeah. True. So um, just imagine <laughs> we have everything solved. What can we do as individuals? Can we do anything? We are the ones that buy these cheap products, basically. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, and of course, um, some people tend to think that the cheaper the product is, the more violations will occur in the, in the supply chain. But that's not necessary uh, or true per se. So it's not always the cheapest products which violate human rights. True, uh, there are also violations of MS. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, 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 yeah, um, so, so that the problem is, I think, that indeed... Um, we need more information, I think. And, uh, mm -hmm. and of course, consumers should start thinking of this. Yeah. So there are many consumers, I think, so far, who only are looking at lowest prices and do not care. Yeah. And so that have to change, I think. And we all have to care, I think, in terms of what we do not want to buy these kind of products which violate human rights. So that's first thing. But then, if we are willing to indeed kind of buy kind of products which are indeed... Um, yeah, more human rights compliance, so to say, then at this point it's very hard to get information yeah. on, well, to which extent um, human rights are violated. And, and that is also because companies are not really able to measure human rights impact yeah. uh, at this time. Because what we are measuring so far, we have, of course, many rating agencies like Sustainalytics, uh, the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, um, but what they do is measure company activity to mitigate human rights risks. But of course, company can uh, deploy many activities, yeah. but that does not necessarily say that the results for the stakeholders are also positive. And so measuring results for stakeholders, that's what's not being done yeah. currently. So basically, we do not really know. Yeah. And so I think to better inform consumers and, and, and allow them and enable them to make more kind of responsible decisions in terms of buying things, well, we need to provide better information and the companies themselves need yeah. better information. So I think there, um, well, we should start measuring yeah. in another way. And I think right. there are now kind of initiatives which indeed try to do that by, by surveying yeah. uh, stakeholders. Uh, but I think that is a big change we still need to really make consumers, uh, of course they have to care, but then they yeah. also need more in, and better information. I think. Okay. So I think that leaves us uh, with, again, we should care more, <laughs> as was also the end of the previous episode. We should all care more. And once we have sufficient information, we should be prepared to make responsible choices. But we can make responsible choices already uh, to a certain extent. So thank you very much for the very, very interesting talk and the numerous explanations. Uh, I think it's just the beginning of growing awareness, hopefully. Uh, I hope the companies 
will be held responsible for their violation actions. Um, yes, so thank you very much. Well, it was my pleasure to, to be here and, uh, and also to explain a little bit more about this topic. We already discussed that we can talk for days on this True. topic. <laughs> so not yeah. all has been said here, I think, but, but still, I think it's, it was very nice to be here and to, to tell okay. a little bit about this, uh, this topic. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you also to the audience. Uh, thank you very much. And as always, stay tuned and be curious. 